Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 216 for September 4th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and this is Nymph 2008, Part 2. We got six Nymph shows, and we're going to hear songs and interviews from all the shows. And we've got a couple great guests, including our very first ever Academy Award winner, Bobby Houston, who's uh, the writer for Castronauts, the first interview in this segment. We're also going to talk with The Bubble, The Hat Bin, Jason and Ben, Sophia's Fall, Midnight Madness, and... Guess what? We've got Marty Cooper back. Yeah, he's back for On the Positive Side to talk about A Tale of Two Cities. And, of course, we've got The Producer's Perspective with Ken Davenport. So we've got a fantastic episode. So uh, buckle up and uh, hop on board the Broadway Bullet. Let's get rolling. On the Boards. An Academy Award-winning filmmaker is making his first steps into the New York musical theater world with his nymph presentation of Castronauts, in which he wrote the book, and he's also producing the show. And we have Bobby Houston here with us to talk about his show, Castronauts, and we're going to hear a couple songs from the demo as well. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great, Michael. Okay. Normally, I start off with what Castronauts about, but I, I have a feeling everybody's wondering what's the Academy Award about. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. How about that? That little trinket. Um, I was a filmmaker for thirty years in uh, living in LA. I, I I come from New York, but I beat a real fast path out to uh, California when I was a kid, and um, I wound up making documentaries uh, about the civil rights movement and uh, in. 2003, I was nominated with a film about Rosa Parks, and in 2005, I took home the gold for a film about the Birmingham riots uh, of 1963. It was called The Children's March. And um, they say that it is an out-of-body experience to win an Oscar. I am here to tell you that is correct. (laughs) How did it feel getting up on the stage and knowing that there were like a a billion or two people watching your... Your speech. Uh, I had discovered a very useful tool called beta blockers. <laughs> so, uh, because in in '03 I was a nervous wreck. I was absolutely a mess. Um, and in '05, uh, you know, it was sort of like I'd had my dress rehearsal, and um, you uh, you stand up, and I just felt like doing a soft shoe. I mean, I was up on stage at the Kodak Theater, and there, and, uh, and Natalie Portman is my presenter. She hands me an Oscar, and I'm like. I just was chatting with Matt. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad it's you. You're so cute. <laughs> uh, so it was pretty cool. And then they take you backstage. They whip you backstage and um, start taking your picture. And you think, uh, well, that's done. They take you into another room, and there's another 50 photographers. And then they take you into the pool room, the press pool room, and there's 200 photographers on bleachers. 
Uh, I mean, you just can't imagine how much press is at the uh, Oscars. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, the Oscar is um, something you put behind you as fast as you can because hopefully you didn't peak. <laughs> Does it help get more work? Um, people look at you a little uh, a little differently. Uh, physically, they look at you a little longer. Uh, in meetings, they kind of wait. You know, they don't step on your sentences if you're talking. Um, but uh, okay, I got to interrupt you now. Just <laughs> good job. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, this is New York. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, no, it it uh, opens up some. Uh, you, you get a little credibility. I'll say that. But on the other hand, you know, what am I doing? I, I, I wrote uh, lyrics in a book, a book musical, and uh, came to New York, and, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be coming right in at the ground level with Nymph. Um, and I will say this, New York, you are nicer. <laughs> you people are sweet. You work for very low. I mean, on Nymph, my God, you get these really skilled professionals. You know, Will Pomerantz is directing for me. Um, he is a hot director. Uh, I just saw a huge revival that he did of a Gershwin show up at Bard. Um, you know, 24 on stage, 12 in the pit. It was a full-sized Broadway show. And, and here he is working, you know, for Peanuts uh, because he likes the Literally. Nature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw <laughs> the bag. <laughs> he eats like a bird. <laughs> um, so and and it's and that goes across the board, you know, the designers, the the cast. I mean, everybody. You wonder how they survive, and yet they're so up, they're so sweet, and uh, they really show up. It's I'm I'm just really impressed with the spirit of the theater community here in New York. All right. So what is Castronauts about? Uh, Castronauts is not as wacky as it might sound. Um, there was a rumor when we submitted the show to Nymph that it was about uh, Cuban drag queens in space. <laughs> um, in, fa in fact, it is about Cuban drag queens um, crossing, ultimately crossing to Florida in a converted Chevrolet. Uh, so it is, it is that wacky. But, um, but it's based in, in some very real stuff. Um, I was watching documentaries about the boat people coming from uh, Havana, and um, I, I found them very theatrical. The, the Cubans have tremendous flair. They have a lot of uh, uh, aphorisms about how they drink uh, sweetness and bitterness from the same cup. That's, that's a Cuban way. And um, it, it really struck me as a, as a story. I started writing it as a screenplay because that's my habit. Um, but uh, being on the East Coast and being exposed to theater, somebody nudged me and said, you know, this is a show. And um, I had never written a lyric in my life. Uh, and suddenly there I was with a rhyming dictionary and, you know, just like songwriting 101, I can do that. <laughs> I've heard a few songs in my time. Um, and the first song, I have to say, uh, I think it, it may no longer live in the show, the very first song I wrote. But uh, but I got the knack. It was sort of like riding a bike and, and I got the hang of it. And, and I just love it. It's fabulous. Um, so the, the show is... Um, the story of a, of a cabaret troupe who have a side street uh, operation in Havana, which is illegal, but registered, uh, very important, and they, they pay their uh, graft and they pay their police. And, um, and it's um, equal parts drag queens and, and topless girls. It's something for everybody. Uh, there's a very cute boy uh, on stage. And um, 
they get in, themselves into a little uh, hot water uh, and things come to a boil when Fidel himself shows up. Now, whether or not that actually happened, Mama up in the balcony who watches the show will dispute absolutely everything. She says, this never happened. She turns to the audience, this is bullshit. This never would have happened. But this, the show goes on and Fidel um, uh, meets an untimely death at the end of Act One in the cabaret. Um, and they beat a quick retreat to uh, Florida as fast as they can. Halfway across uh, the Straits of Florida, the word comes that uh, Fidel is not at all dead. Um, Fidel is fine. He's just on TV. He was just on TV. Um, but they're heading for America with their dreams, and they make it. All right, so I think now's the time to play one of the demos from the show in one of your first attempts at lyrics. <laughs> Is this, this was not my very first song. Okay. This, this was a song when I had sort of a little bit gotten my sea legs. And um, uh, the song is Bigger Than Barbie. Um, everybody in uh, the cast of the L Club Voodoo have a, have a big dream for their futures in America. And nobody dreams bigger than the six-foot-eight black drag queen in a blonde wig named Amazona. <laughs> so this is bigger than Barbie. And who's singing? Terry Lavelle. Terry Lavelle is uh, tearing it up on Bigger Than Barbie. Yeah, these cast members, they cut your demo before they started rehearsing. So. Right. We, we start rehearsing tomorrow, and um, we, were, we threw everybody into the demo booth just tonight to see what happens. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a listen to Bigger Than Barbie. How dare you call me small? I'm nothing if not big. In hills, I'm nine feet tall. Well, half of that is weird. Let me tell you something, honey. Amazonas got a plan. I'll be rolling in the money. You'll be sleeping in a van. In America, they'll love me. I can see the future now. I'm a bigger star than Bobby. Hold your tongue, you silly cow. Bobby has a figure, skinny legs, I'll grant you that. But Bobby is so white, dear, in her little fill box hat. Amazona has got legginess, she certainly has got grace. Amazona has a blackness and a blondness in her face. Amazona will be legend when the time comes and it will. Amazona lipstick and shampoo. Amazona's <laughs> beauty pill. Dress couture, I decree aquamarine. Now I'm prowling down the catwalk or endorsing some new car. In and out of trendy rehabs, just a Swedish superstar. The fashion press will hang upon my every word and whim. Amazona, what comes next? Next, I think I'll hit the gym. As I climb into my limo, paparazzi shout my name. Amazona, please don't leave us so enormous is my fame that the world will simply
Right, and some of our listeners who've uh, been Nymph fans in the past might remember Terry Lavelle from uh, from the Nymph Idol two years ago. There he was in the finals. He, I'm telling you, he's freaking unforgettable. Um, we we were casting for a a. a a human being that defies the same figure, that, you know, that, that death-defying figure that Barbie has, the impossible figure. And Terry Lavelle in Heels is Barbie. <laughs> so what was the, the impetus in your mind to move from, well, I'm, I'm assuming you're not giving up filmmaking, but to start moving into the musical theater world? It was really geographic. I, um, I had lived in uh, California for 30 years, um, and um, it's sort of like the Buddy Hackett joke. Um, I, I give credit where credit is due. He said, um, I love California. I, um, I, I went out, you know, it's so lovely and sunny. I went out to the pool. Uh, the phone rang. I went inside, and I was 90. <laughs> um, it's just fucking boring, I got to tell you. And, and <laughs> so I came home. I came home to the East Coast where there's thunderstorms and snowstorms and... And, you know, people, people, for God's sakes, not Lexus is lined up on the freeway with the tinted windows. I, I'm very happy to be back in New York. <laughs> All right. So what is the, how is the process? What has been most surprising about the process of getting, getting the show to the, or even just the rehearsal point at this stage? Oh, uh, truthfully, this, the getting into Nymph is in some ways a Cinderella, a little bit of a Cinderella story because, um, we had, um, I'd been working with my friend Patricio, who I, uh, is, is a Brazilian performer and a, a, a talent, and we had been writing the book uh, for a couple of months, you know, like a year and a half, and um, we submitted to Nymph with a composer who the night before the deadline said, um, I'm pulling the music, I, I, I think we've lost our way. And uh, we kind of felt that he had lost his way, but we didn't, so. <laughs> we hadn't. So. Um, so we submitted uh, to Nymph, basically without without a composer, and we got in. Uh, out of 400 submissions, they picked 12, and we were one of them. And and um, we were kind of given a little nudge uh, or a, a, a slight whisper that it was you know on the strength of the book, but please get a composer, please. <laughs> um, and next thing I know, courtesy of you know the New York Mojo, a filmmaker friend said, well. Have you talked to Randy Kortz? Doesn't he live up near you in Great Barrington? I live in, in the Berkshires. And uh, I'm like, yeah, he, that's, he lives two minutes from me. So I, I met with Randy Kortz. Um, we, we introduced ourselves to each other. He had, had been steeping himself in Brazilian music for about six months. He was preparing to write a magnum opus um, in the Brazilian musical idiom. And I said, well, do you think you could just squeeze in a quick show? <laughs> and he did. I mean, he, he uh, had basically three and a half months to write 18 songs. He did it. Um, they're glorious. I love them. Every, it was like the, the highlight of my life. I have to say it's one of the greatest memories of my life is to about once a week I would ride my bicycle to Randy's house. He would sit me down and he would sing the melodies to the to the lyrics that had had been written, and I, in almost without fail, I loved what he had done. So, um, and I will say that the song that we'll play next is particularly poignant. Because yeah, let's go ahead and set it up. He, um, Randy, uh, his father had been ill, uh, and his mother had been caretaking for quite a while, um, 
And there came a point during our time of working intensely on the show when Randy knew that he was going to lose his dad. And um, we had been writing the songs in, in no particular order. He had been working on them in no particular order. He plucked out this one song, which is about facing death. And uh, it got quiet on his end. And I left him alone. And then he called me in, and he played this melody, which is so spare and, and uh, minimal, and yet, to me, very consistently powerful. Every time I hear this song, I find that the power is in it. Um, and that's, that's saying something that's artistry for me. So the song is called The Taste of Tears. And it's sung by Candace Reyes-Newton, um, who is the gorgeous 23-year-old um, with a lovely voice. And uh, I'm really proud of this particular song. All right, let's take a listen. My family were not sailors. We never fished the sea. My father was a baker man. Gave me sweets for free. I've always been the shy one. They kept me from the sun. A bloom that never flowered. A song left
very shortly. We will see on stage how this all works out and <laughs> how this has come together. I know the show plays from September 16th to the 28th. And people can get the very scheduling on uh, the nymph.org website. Right. Uh, do you know what theater you're at? Oh, yeah. We're in the perfect spot. We're at the Zipper Factory. Um, and, uh, I mean, Castronauts is a show about a cabaret. It's a show within a show within a show with people uh, contesting reality right straight to the audience. And uh, at many points we have a a man who's been playing a woman who's now in costume playing a man. It's, it's, uh, it's certainly nymph all the way, um, and it's at the Zipper Factory. All right. Well, Bobby Houston, I thank you so much for coming down and talking about not only the show, but about your experience with your Academy Award, and maybe there's a, a Tony in your future. And oh, that would be sweet. <laughs> have you gone for the Emmy yet? Or I, actually have, I, I actually do have an Emmy. You do have an Emmy, actually, so you're going for the Triple Crown. Yeah. Let's <laughs> All right, well, thanks, and best of luck with Castronauts at Nymph. Thank you, Michael. The Call Board. The glorious experiment that began five years ago with a concert featuring great singers singing great songs, but without microphones in a 1,500-seat theater, has blossomed into an annual celebration. The concert is attended every year by musical theater lovers who crave the sound of the pure human voice and the opportunity to hear great Broadway music the way it was originally performed, with nothing between the singer and the audience except the truth. This year, that celebration continues with the fifth annual Broadway Unplugged on Monday, November 17th at 8 p.m. at the Town Hall in New York. Next, Stephen Sondheim and John Weedman may have abandoned the title, but Geroda Theater, the new theater company with the mission to promote mercy, beauty, and truth throughout performance and service, will present Bounce September 4th at Frog in Manhattan. That's fr.og. The Geroda Bounce is the company's annual dance party to help raise funds for the organization's various outreach programs. The evening, which begins at 9 p.m., will also include raffle prizes and goodie bags. Members of Geroda encourage those interested in bouncing to, quote, stretch first. The taking of vitamins and consumption of electrolytes is also recommended, end quote. Frog is located in Manhattan at 71 Spring Street at Lafayette. Tickets priced $25 will be available at the door. Next, Variety is reporting that Noel Coward's play, Blythe Spirit, will have life on Broadway this upcoming spring season. The play will be produced by the same group behind August Osage County and the upcoming Speed the Plow. Michael Blakemore will be directing. In 2000, Blakemore became the only director to receive a Tony for both direction of a musical and best direction of a play in the same year for his work on Copenhagen and Kiss Me Kate. The play is aiming for a March opening in a Schubert theater that will be announced at a later date. No casting has yet been announced. On the boards. As some investors think we are heading towards another bubble burst on the internet boom with uh, companies like YouTube making no money but commanding billions of dollars, uh, it's appropriate that we've got a new musical at Nymph that deals with this very issue called The Bubble. And we have got uh, uh, conceivers and co-writers and lyricists. <laughs> so much more. Multi-hyphenates Karen Paul and Wendy Robbins here to talk about the bubble. How are you two doing? Yay! Really good. Good. Excellent. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Out here from New Mexico, I understand. From yeah. House, New Mexico, where we live in a bubble. <laughs> we do. We, li- we literally live in a big bubble. It's, it's a, a big dome house. house, and they needed a bubble to build the house. And it's on five acres, and it's gorgeous. Five acres. That's mm-hmm. like 10,000 people? Uh, it would be in New York. <laughs> That's about it. In, in New York, it would be that about that. Each yeah. little piece of sage represents a person. So we got billions. <laughs> oh, it's quite different. Uh, All right. So, what is the bubble about? Well, first, I'd like to start your viewers with a quiz. And according to a quiz? viewers, this is an interactive. <laughs> viewers, they can't, they can't call in and answer. Don't okay, well, the wrong station. That was down the street. We made a left, and look where we are. Well, let's, well, let's just say I'd like to. I'd like to read this thing. This is a, the, a definition of the bubble by Dictionary.com. Is a, a nearly spherical body of gas contained in a liquid. B, a small globule of gas in thin liquid envelope. Three, the act or sound of bubbling, or four, an inflated speculation on the value of something. So that's what the show's ding, ding, about. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. It's about a big, what is it? A it's garbling? a speculative bubble. It's not about the nearly spherical body of gas, which is another bubble show I hear is going on. And basically, the bubble is about the rise and fall of the internet era of the 90s, and specifically of such companies like Pets.com. You probably remember that sock puppet. Mm-hmm. Well, he makes a little bit of an appearance on our show, but he's um, he's kind of down and out, and he has a five o'clock shadow and a little c- cigarette butt hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, Webvan and, and companies that were really valued uh, based on projections of their uh, worth, not actuals. Uh, basically, you had twenty-year-olds who had never had any experience before running the show, having no business model. They just had a dot-com, and these guys were able to raise tons of money. Have no no business projection. I mean, they didn't even know what the heck they were doing, and it was valued like at billions of dollars, even though they were losing millions of dollars. And, and it they burst. They, it did burst, and they used what Enron used, which is called mark-to-market accounting, where the basis of the value of their company is completely artificial, and people would speculate and buy stocks based on this. And when the bubble burst, there were a lot of uh, people that were out of money, and some people actually lost their lives. It was pretty serious. Um, others, you know, very few, became millionaires. Five trillion dollars lost, which is probably what we spent on the war. But, you know, from one generation to the next. And we're not being political or anything. No, not at all. But here's something from the New York Times that I thought was really interesting, and it inspired me to um, continue writing the show, because the show has been an eight years' work in progress. People who come prepared for interviews, I'm like, okay. Uh, it's crazy! <laughs> and we've got the Wikipedia right on my back. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have, and then we'll talk about my therapy You session. really <laughs> liked presentations in grade school, didn't you? Who, me? <laughs> she has an A-plus, don't you? Let's just give it to her, a gold chart. Don't hate me for being an, <laughs> don't hate me for being an honor student. <laughs> okay, jeepers. Kick you me guys, on her back, though. All you yeah. guys were surfing? I was reading. Oh. Here's okay. an article. <laughs> okay, pass that around. Yeah, all right. There's <laughs> enough for everybody to share. Silicon Valley startups awash in dollars again. Okay, this is a short paragraph. In San Francisco, October 16th, 2007, Silicon's va- Silicon Valley's math is getting fuzzy again. Internet companies with funny names, little revenue, and few customers are commanding high prices. And investors, having seemingly forgotten the pain of the first dot-com bubble bust, are displaying symptoms of the disorder known as irrational exuberance. And this was definitely an inspiration for the show. And I have to say also, it's autobiographical. I personally rode the wave of the bubble. 
Um, when I was in 1999, I was working at CBS as a sales representative. And at that time, I thought $40,000 was a lot of money. Um, what I did was I sold a package to a company called Zing.com. It was the first online digital photo site where you could take your digital photos, upload them, and basically you know, get a bunch of eyeballs to the site. Problem was, they were much ahead of their time. It was the first digital photo site, but not everyone had digital cameras. It was before the wave of digital camera sales. So this company went up and down, and it was one of the titanic uh, I guess, examples of the internet bubble burst. And no one's probably heard of Zing. But at that time, I was also working at Excite.com, which merged with At Home, so At Home Excite. And um, there was a scooter park there. People would ride scooters back and forth from one wing, like the west wing to the east wing. And I just thought it was ridiculous. So I started writing a musical. I thought, this is absolutely insane. And when I sold that package uh, at CBS to Zing, it was a quarter of a million dollars and they got 30 commercial spots. And this was around the time that Pets.com bought a Super Bowl commercial for $3 million. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, there's got to be a musical done about this because it's, it's absolutely cultish and irrational, and all the makings of a musical were there. So I started writing it in 99, 2000, and, you know, life got in the way. I got a master's in theater in the meantime while working at a dot-com. And when they told me I was going to get paid $180,000 for the same thing I was doing at CBS for 40000 plus they gave me 100,000 stock options, which if I had cashed them and if the company was you know, actually valued at what they projected, I would have been a millionaire today. Mm -hmm. So the show is also an example of you know, a dot-com survivor story. And that, that's my take. And then Wendy came along um, after I submitted to the New York Musical Festival last year, and I had written like of War and Peace, The Bubble. Um, the dramaturg there, Jess McLeod, who is the program director, said, you know what, why don't you take all your monologues and your soliloquies and turn them into songs? <laughs> and how about instead of 300 pages or 150 pages, which equates to about, you know, Dances with Wolves, the bubble. You'd be there forever. <laughs> You're You'd like, be is he ever going to dance with the wolves? Is the bubble yeah. ever, ever going to burst? For God's sake, please. <laughs> Somebody get a pin. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So I, uh, I got all this advice, and it's my first musical. I've mostly written plays. Um, I, I turned to Wendy, because she's written and produced a few films, and she's got a few Emmys, and here's Wendy to tell you more. And so much more. No, I mean, you know, you know what's most important is that the thing is getting buzz already. And a lot of people are, uh, I mean, so far we've sold out two nights and they haven't even sold publicly at all. And it keeps going and going. And I think it's because we've got a Grammy Award winning composer, David Pack. The show itself is really good. And you've got um, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeff Jeffrey, Cohen. Well, Jeff, Jeffrey Martin, I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Because his his background is uh, from high school, the musical and stuff. So he's already got a fan base, and it's just fun and funny. I mean, you laugh out loud, and we're cracking ourselves up. And you have to imagine if you're seeing it over and over and you're still laughing, this is a good sign. And his name is actually John Jeffrey Martin, and he was the lead in High School Musical. And yeah. He's got a huge fan base, and he's bringing them in. We also have a Lion King director, Terry Berlinger. And we have um, Lon Hoyt, our musical director from Hairspray. So we've got a lot of great names in yeah, there. Yeah, he's adapting it so that it's it's just like you're, you're going, wow, it was good. Now it's getting better and better and better. And so it's like the opposite of the bubble popping. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's getting bigger. 
and and um, I think that's the fun. And then we got to meet with Isaac and the guys that created Nymph, and and got to see what they're about. And it's amazing because you get to have your dream come true, and that's phenomenal. And that's really what the show is about: is you got to stand for something. And a lot of us are just doing our daily gig, and we're wondering what the hell we're doing, and we're wondering why our life's purpose isn't manifesting. And this is a show about what do you do when you go? You know what? I'm just doing it for the job. I'm just doing it for the money. I'm doing it for the greed. I'm doing it. My soul's not involved. And what do you do when you go? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. This this needs to shift. There's something I'm standing for. What that? What am I standing? Oh, I'm standing for this. And then you show up mm-hmm. and you show up big and you get a, a show that that gets in, into the nymph or you get you know your your poetry read in front of billions of people or you get to be uh you know elected in the democratic party Woo-hoo! as the first african-american whatever it is whatever your dream is is exactly what you need to go for and that's what the show is by the end you're like oh man i'm standing up for my dream what is my dream my dream's that i'm going for it i'm go- whatever yeah, it takes the I'm show doing it. the show is totally wendy it's totally about living your dream and also the main character matt has to he he basically sells his soul to dot god dot god dot god and um he he sells out for stock options and and he really wants to be an environmental lawyer and save the earth and um there's there's a bird it's called the hoodoo bird and it's going to go extinct and it turns out that the dot com i talk about in this play is called go for it and go for it happened to put their building and will be expanding um on what's left of the saltwater marshes which is where this hoodoo bird lives and it's its native habitat and it only comes back every 20 years or something 25 years and just like years, turtles like the turtles and it's a you know it's a made up bird the hoodoo bird but it represents the soon to be extinct artists that were in San Francisco at the time I wrote this show. It's important to note that there were protesters outside of Zing.com almost every Friday. That's when they closed the streets and only bicycles could go and, and the protesters would be like, out, out, damn dot. And I know that's a Macbeth, a Macbethian, but they were really furious that we were taking up, we, the dot-comers at the time, were taking up their precious real estate work live lofts. And we were. I mean, we basically occupied this building and it was in the news, which was created for artists and occupied by dot-coms, and that was happening all over. So the hoodoos, the artists, the people that were really losing their souls over stocks are the people this show's about. And and hopefully it's therapy for some people, and other people might have to buy Depends, because it's really funny. Yeah. All right, well, we should listen to one of the songs here from the demo that you brought in. Uh, do you want to set up this first song? Does the first song we're playing need any setup? The well, the first song is the Bubble theme song, and I actually wrote it eight years ago, and then David Pack came in a year ago into the, into the show, and he helped me co-write some of the lyrics. And it's basically about being in the bubble, but hey, we're, you know, we're drinking, we're smoking, we're token. It's the good life, and that's the setup for this song. All right, let's take a listen. All right. They say we're in a bubble, a bubble, a bubble. If that's the case, we're all in a crazy amount of trouble. But just when I was smoking, we're drinking, we're token, Driving on fancy cars, living on champagne and caviar. We think it faster turns than you. More sophisticated too. We like to live bigger, better, faster. We're all just a bunch of multitaskers. Multitaskers, multitaskers. That's what we're after. What we're after. Multitaskers, multitaskers. Living on the double, living on the double. The same we're in a bubble, a bubble, a bubble. If that's the case, we're all in a crazy amount of trouble. But just for now, we're smoking, we're drinking, we're talking, driving those fancy cars. Living on champagne and caviar. Faster steeds than you, the more sophisticated too. We like to 
Now, Wendy, I, I heard Karen sneak it in, but I didn't get a chance to ask you about it. Did, did I hear that you won a couple Emmys there? Yeah. What was that for? For two different uh, projects. And actually, my very first uh, film ever was called Hollywood, A Town Remembered. We got all these elders to talk about Hollywood when it was when there were sheep running around Hollywood Boulevard and, you know, pepper, pepper trees and, you know, the hat lady of Hollywood and stuff like that. And um, so that was the first thing that we got nominated for. And then I got another one on Ozone, Danger Zone, which was about the ozone and another one called Kids Killing Kids, Kids Saving Kids, which was about gangs and what do you what do you do to stop the violence? And so that's pretty cool. And and the idea of telling stories is just feeling yummy again. It's just like that That needs to be, when we talk about life purpose, that seems to be a life purpose as opposed to other things. She's very weren't. talented. Oh, thank you, honey. So are you. Thank you, honey. So She's are. also my wife. We're actually married. We got married last year, so we're out and proud. Mm -hmm. And That's now we're good. out to everyone in New York. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll recognize and they'll re you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. hey, we're the really cute I ones. I saw your voice. Um. <laughs> oh, sure they'll recognize us. I'm wearing a cowboy hat. It's my, it's my lucky hat. Blonde curly hair here. Yeah. Actually, Wendy also is the co-inventor of the Tingler, the head massager, and uh, she's very Ten well known. copper fingers. I don't know if you've ever done Are you serious? Serious. serious? Oh, my God. Dude. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, her. Did, did the two of you just sit around going, what am I going to do today? Write a musical. <laughs> <laughs> Tingle the world it's in so many ways. That, exactly, that was pretty much it. Win an Emmy. Write uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, a you musical. This is interesting. We, we should point out we're big believers in new thought and big believers in the secret. And I read that title of show also manifested doing title of show on Broadway by visualizing and by thinking, because we are our thoughts. And there's, what, four, four billion bits of information we get, but we only use 200,000. Is that right, honey? <laughs> 2,000 bits. We use 2,000 bits? It's in the show. You have to come see the show in order to know that She wrote that, that line, and I still moment. can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah, right. but, but we use such a small percentage of our minds, so if we can actually really focus in on specifically what we want, which is, I want the bubble on Broadway then that will happen and we hold that thought and that's how Wendy got send her... the bubble to Broadway that's the whole thing send yeah. the bubble to Broadway send why the not bubble everybody to who's listening can make that happen the by just bubble, showing up the bubble buzz the, yeah let's make it happen and <laughs> put it in a time capsule so this bubble doesn't happen again Red Bull wants to sponsor it and that came about with just literally just going okay how do we pay for the thing Red Bull and then you literally just go okay well they were drinking Red Bull back then. You know, call them. Call them. They call back within, within what, like 20 minutes or 20 so? 20 minutes. And say, hey, we're interested. No, I knew. Cold I call. did. I did. But, but I didn't but, tell her. Oh, it's okay. really? I'll tell you later. Seriously? Oh, yeah. I thought the person had left. I bribed them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's how you do it. You no, no, it. no. The truth is, is I knew the VP of advertising I knew because I I own an internet company, and it's uh, called Sales Guru Consulting. And where Again, I, can, I just decided to sit down and... Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but see, that's the I whole just, thing. I, I sat down one day, and 20 years later, I had this internet company. Um, yeah. um, actually, it's it's been a work in progress because I've been working at bubble companies and dot-coms since 2000, since... Pretty much the beginning of the end, and then I was there. I'm still there, and I own one of those companies. But what I, what's changed for me is I've become more of a realist. Where if there's numbers, I really want to see the actuals. I don't want to see the projected. I want to know what the bottom line is. Which is opposite of what happened in the bubble, where all they cared about is potential eyeballs. Eyeballs. All they cared about were eyeballs. It's all about eyeballs, and a as opposed to anything that was real. Right. 
Now it's about ears because we're on the radio. Yeah, that's true. But there's no ear balls. Ear balls. Ah. All right, well, let's take a listen to the second song here from your uh, demo. Do you want to set up this song? Sure. You Gotta Stand for Something is a song that's sung by Harmony, and Harmony is played by Marianne Torres, and she's the lead protester artist in the show, and she represents um, the side of hope and peace and can't we all get along. Um, and she's singing to Matt, the main character, who we said earlier is played by, and I always say his middle name first is played by, hopefully we could cut this part. (laughs) (laughs) We don't cut anything. We don't cut. It's just edited. John Jeffrey Jeffrey Martin plays Matt. So Harmony is singing Bigger, Better, Faster, More to Matt because he just said to her, you know what? Money, what does he say, honey? That was your line. Money makes the world go round. No. Can you cut this part? No, they don't cut. (laughs) Look at you. You're wanting to cut, and it's a live interview. Basically, All right, so basically, the bottom line is like we talked about before. You got you got to stand for something. You got you got to go for what your dream is. What is your dream, and are you going for it? And if you're not going for it, I got it. Loser. Love makes the world go round, but money pays for the trip, and that's when she goes into this song. All right. All right. Coffee set in. Blonde.
Robbins, it has been a pleasure talking to you about the bubble. Uh, Will you come? Will I need you come to the ca- show? I need more caffeine this morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. It, it definitely sounds great. Um, and if anybody else wants to catch the bubble buzz, it's uh, September 17th to the 28th at Nymph, right? At the Zipper. At the Zipper Theater. The Zipper, which is 336 West 37th Street in New York. And you also have your own website besides the Nymph site where people can get all the schedule and information I'm assuming. Right, that's www.thebubblemusical.com. Now, we expect, since you said you have a web company, that this website is going to be fabulous, right? Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's great, it's wonderful, and it's, you know, within the off-Broadway budget, and it's absolutely wonderful. Uh Niv gave us uh, $5 to create the budget, I mean, of the website, so. So I hired a 12-year-old. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. Actually, a guy named Kane Aberon did it, and he did a wonderful job, and uh, we're really proud of it. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Best of luck with the bubble. Thank Thank you. you. On the positive side. Hey, uh, this is this Marty Cooper once again. Still on the positive side, although I've been away for about three months, but uh, and I've been away from the theater basically. Um, I was ill. And I'm um, trying to correct all the situations, you know, and whatever. But uh, enough of that. Um, last night I had the pleasure of seeing uh, uh, The Tale of Two Cities. And um, I won't bring up Les Mis again, but uh, uh, there are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of things that, that I like because of that, because of the parallels. And there are things that are not the same. In fact, the end of Act One is is so obviously uh, one day more. The song is called Until Tomorrow. Uh, but in actuality, after watching Les Mis for 20 years, um, I found this Act Two closing a little more stirring. The, the staging is great. Uh, it's in a uh, it's at the Hirschfield Theater, which is uh, intimate for a uh, for a Broadway musical, uh, and that's what adds to the show somewhat. Um, as I was telling Michael before, uh, they use the complete proscenium, which goes up about five or six flights, and uh, it kind of envelops you once the curtain goes up uh, and looks big and grand. Uh, they use they don't use a turntable, but they use uh, rolling sets that actually some of the cast members roll on and off the stage. And uh, it's, it's very effective. Uh, the one person I will talk about is uh, James Barber. He is astounding. 
I think it's going to be a difficult time for uh, best actors in a musical this year, because of course, uh, from what I understand, I think they're going to allow it here as they did in London, that the three kids from Billy Elliot will be nominated as one. And if they do the kind of job they did over in London, uh, it's going to be a tough act to follow. Um, and then, of course, we have that green man, Shrek. Uh, actually, there's, there's no word on that show whatsoever, so I don't know what's going to come of it. Uh, it'll probably be a, be a hit because, because the movie is so beloved. And, but anyway, uh, getting back to Tale of Two Cities, um, Jim Barber has a couple of songs in the first act that just blow you away. Uh, I Can't Recall, uh, which gets the audience almost standing uh, towards the end of the first act, and uh, If Dreams Come True, which is beautifully staged, uh, showing you the love triangle uh, taking place uh, between Darnay and, uh, uh, and, and, and Miss Minette and, uh, and, and, and Sidney Carton. Uh, they show you the love triangle during this number, and it's, it's fantastically staged. Uh, I've noticed that the, uh, that the vultures are already uh, coming down on it, if you read all that chat. Uh, people just love saying something negative about something like this. A new composer who's done a fantastic job, Jill Santoriello. And uh, I find very few uh, moments that you even close your eyes on in the show. Uh, there's, there's not a boring moment in it as far as I'm concerned. But if you read all that chat, they, they are running it out of town already. They're saying it's going to get scalded by the critics. I'm not sure. I'm not sure because it's, a, it's something critic. It's the type of show that critics love to hate. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's going to get scalded by the by by them because it's uh, you have such wonderful things going on. Even if you find certain things bad, uh, you have wonderful things happening throughout the show. Uh, I loved it, and uh, I I hope. I hope they can fill 1,400 seats uh, every night. Uh, right now, it's doing kind of medium business for a show that's in previews. But I think I, I have a feeling also that people seeing A Tale of Two Cities on a marquee, it might have some marquee value, much like Phantom and Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde, which ran for four years on marquee value alone, um, and sometimes rock super, superstars. But uh, it felt good last night getting back to the theater, uh, my home away from home. And uh, I love the show. Uh, and I urge you people not to be driven by, as I call them, the vultures, uh, and go see it. Now, you might want to see it after the show opens, because from what I heard, they're changing it every five minutes. Um, so, uh, or you might want to see it in development, whatever. Uh, but, but go see it and uh, pay no attention to the vultures. And uh, in any case, uh, this has been On the Positive Side with Marty Cooper. And uh, if you have any opinions, you can email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Uh, I'll be glad to hear from you. Uh, and thanks for the kind wishes from some people that emailed me the last number of weeks. 
in any case, stay on the positive side. On the boards. Every year we seem to see a couple musicals come from Australia to the New York Musical Theater Festival, making the long journey, and this year's no exception, with The Hat Pin, which is a musical drama uh, centering around, we'll, we'll talk about it a uh, little bit, based around the fostering system in the early ages. And all the way from Australia, we have James Miller, who did the book and lyrics for the show, and uh, Caroline O'Connor, who is from Australia, but I don't think currently, but we'll probably get into that. How are you two doing? Very well. How are Great. You? Thank you. All right. Well, first off, what is The Hat Pin about? Uh, the Hat Pin's a, based on a true story that uh, occurred in Sydney, but uh, the events that happened in the story happened uh, quite consistently throughout the world. Um, about the period uh, from about 1892 to 1902 when there was no infrastructure for single mothers and so people would uh, advertise single mothers would advertise their children in a newspaper like a buy and sell column to say I'm looking for temporary care for my child until I can get back on my feet so uh, professional ba- baby carers would would take children into their into their care and would be paid by the mother to look after the child um, in terms of the hat pin the, uh, it's an example of what happened when that system went pretty wrong. <laughs> yes. They sort of were always hoping that, the, you know, they would be reunited and certain circumstances happened. And uh, I think the fact that it's based on a true story just gives the, gives the piece such incredible strength. And as James said, though, it could have happened anywhere in the world. So and that, did, and did. And that's the that's the beauty of this actual piece of writing, I think, is that it can be placed anywhere. And um, if James doesn't mind me saying so, um, for someone of such a, a young age um, to have written such a, a strong book and, and the lyrics for this piece, and Peter Rutherford, our composer, who was only 22 at the time when he first com- compose the piece it's 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 extraordinary you know to see people of that age writing something so so beautiful and um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved with it because of the strength of the piece it's just fantastic now you were actually this received a full mounting in Australia in February and March this that's year correct. yes and Caroline you were in that yes I got to play my character Harriet Piper and it's always a thrill you know to create a, a character from scratch which is what I got to do with this piece and um, yeah she's a really feisty strong humorous uh, warm um, addition to, to the show um, and um, the leading lady Amber Murray has the, is the person that's gone through this horrendous situation and Harriet becomes a very close confidant, good friend and supporter of her sort of wanting to get justice uh, by what's happened to her her child. So uh, what, where was it mounted in Australia? Uh, it was in a theatre in Sydney called the York Theatre, which uh, seated about 750 people, which is, uh, and it was actually about, that theatre was about two blocks away from where the show was set, so it had a really nice resonance um, being in the area that, um, that mm. the events of the show happened in. All right, well, before we continue, why don't we take a listen to one of the songs from your... This isn't a demo, this is the original cast album, correct? Correct. (laughs) Want to set up this first song we're going to play? 
Oh. Yeah, well, this is um, actually one of my songs I get to do, lovely song. It, it, funnily enough, it was only written a few weeks before we actually started rehearsals. It was a new addition to the piece, and when I heard it, I just totally fell in love with it. And um, this is a moment when poor, ha- poor Amber Murray is probably at her lowest ebb. She's just not having any success, success at all, trying to, you know, find her child and what's happened uh, to her. She's emotionally very drained, and Harriet somehow sort of... I suppose befriends her and tries to give her some courage to sort of move forward, really. That's why it's called Hand of Courage. All right, well, let's take a listen. I've never had the words to chase dark thoughts away. I have never had the power to turn a night to day Can't make your worries wrong I'd be well healed if I could But there's something about worry that I've always understood If it's lurking near you She says, be sure and hold it tight Cause darling, I'm fast when I move on through the night Take my hand, she says, as she runs towards the
All right, so James, this, I'm assuming this is a rather big undertaking crossing the, uh, was it the Atlantic to come here, or is it the Pacific the yeah. other way? Yes, <laughs> which one was it? Yes, it was, it was a big undertaking. It was 20, 20 hours. So what's been the biggest challenge for you so far getting ready for this production here at Nymph? Uh, um, a lot of it has been, um, has been making sure that the things that um, Australian references, words, that kind of stuff, all ring true here so that they're not um you know we know what mate means yeah there's no mate in it See, i avoided i avoided all the uh, all the familiar things in the script but then that that means yeah because it was a certain period, we know crikey you know. Cri- crikey <laughs> mate there's no there's cri- none of that no crikey, only no in the mate. rehearsal room when we're having tea yes um, there's no. a bit of bloomin we well, see in 1892 i mean they did have slightly different language anyway you know mm. people spoke differently then so but i think also to give credit to talking about bringing a show from australia we have a if you don't mind me saying so, Neil, who's in the other room, we have a fantastic producer who really was determined, you know, to sort of see this piece through, whether it had come here or wherever it might go in the Should future. Should kick him out of the room so you yeah, can... Yeah, he's going really red now, but yeah. honestly, he's like one of the most conscientious and he's so deserved of something like this happening because he really pursues um, great musical theatre in Australia constantly. And, um, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to work for somebody like that who really loves the business. So James, what was were you the original instigator behind the whole idea with the hat pin? Or uh, yes, I was. I it's it sort of started for me when I was about thirteen. My mother bought me a a book home from the local shopping centre that a she library. Found. No, no, the shop <laughs> the shopping centre um, that she found in a in a bargain bin called the Australian uh, Crime Almanac, and she gave it to her thirteen year old son. Um, <laughs> <laughs> other kids were reading Tintin, um, but um, I read it, and it was full of these short stories. I became from that age really obsessed with that particular one and I, I still don't know why I just thought it was a, a fascinating story so when I moved as I grew up and went to uni I did a course in writing and culture and I did a, a main a major work on that case um, and what it meant to law in, in Australia and throughout the world and then just continued to get interested in it then trained as an actor and then when uh, I met up with Pete and he said, I'm looking for someone to write a musical, I said, I've got this story. I, I don't know whether or not it cries out show tunes, but, um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of the way his music operates, it, it was a really nice fit with that story that I knew so well and, um, and the way he composes music. So. Yeah, so it's been it's a story that's been with me for a long time. It's really interesting you should say that because a lot of people he's when they fifteen right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> but also like people talk about the subject matter of shows and that quite often, you know, they might say, Oh, it's quite dark or and you think, Yes, but what about Sweeney Todd and Les Miserables, which is a French revolution and what about Saigon, which is a Vietnam War, you know, so really they're all you know, they're all great possibilities of great theatre, just because it's a slightly darker story. And this it? one, unlike those shows, this this one is much more um intimate, intimate. and, and like a play so yeah. it, the the music is is about character dialogue. rather than massive chorus numbers and people marching you know so it's a it's emotionally epic. And not that there's anything we, wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong. No, no. <laughs> Just giving the right picture of the show. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, the, uh, Pete writes very emotionally epic music, so it's a, it, it fit with uh, the struggle of Amber Murray beautifully. We have a fantastic cast, too. Mm. We have a tremendous actor who I'm <laughs> a fan of, Paul Kendall, in the piece. And just, uh, we've had rehearsals literally for about 15 minutes this morning, and it's already sounding very, really glorious. You know, the voices are just spectacular. Mm. It's very exciting to have a New York cast. Beautiful. 
All right, well, let's take a listen to this uh, second song here from your uh, cast album. You want to set this one up? Uh, yeah, this is the uh, this is the finale to the show. Um, I won't set it up too much because I don't want to give anything away, given it's the <laughs> finale. But it's the uh, it's a closing number with the entire cast. All right, let's take a listen. Just ahead With a tiny voice you never thought you'd hear It says Cry when I can't Laugh when I can't And move on Now I've moved away It says Fight when I can't Scream when I can't And keep growing When you think I don't So the hat pin is uh, opening September 15th, and it runs through uh, September 24th, is that correct? Yeah. And they can get all the various performance dates at the NIMF website, or yeah. your own website is all the, all the dates on there too, I'm assuming? Yes, that's correct. And that's thehatpin.com? Only six performances. <laughs> I don't and like to use these words, but I will. Don't miss out. <laughs> and what theater are you at for? The American Theater of Actors. All right, and that's where? The one I'm not 
That's a new one for Nymph. I don't know. It is on the uh, 314 West 54th Street. All right. And if you want a book, you can go into our website, which is www.nymf.org. All right. Thanks, Michael. Well, James Miller and Caroline O'Connor, not Carolyn. That's right, Caroline. All all the Australians want to pronounce it (laughs) Carolyn. I came here to get away from that. (laughs) Thank you so much for stopping down. Thank Um, you, Michael. As jet-lagged as you may be. (laughs) You just got here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So have a great run with your performance and best of luck. Thank you very much, Michael. On the boards. Jason and Ben is a new rock musical playing at Nymph, a two-hander that explores oh, what kind of torture two people can put each other through in one night. <laughs> and we have got the composer, lyricist, book writer, Matthew Lauren Cohen here with us, along with one of the two stars, Will Taylor, uh, who has just finished a run in Chorus Line on Broadway. And how are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you. You want to introduce yourselves quick so people can connect the voice with the name? Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Matt. (laughs) Here we are. So, first things out of the way, um, what is Jason and Ben? Jason and Ben is a one-act, two-person musical, rock musical. Um, Like you said, it's about uh, two guys who they meet on a Christmas Eve in a park and, you know, proceed to sort of manipulate and... um, I, I say torture, it's a strong word, but they, they spend the evening together, the night together, and sort of play a game with each other, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of humor in the show, too. It's, um, it's got a very contemporary feel to it, which is one of the things that drew me to it, was the way this, the script is so good. The music and, and lyrics are great, too, but the script was just different. And I, I read several scripts this year for for some of the nymph shows and this was the one that i thought definitely had something special what are the shows you didn't want to do (laughs) 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 i blocked some of them out (laughs) no so um will you just completed a run in chorus line yes i'm still recovering from the closing night party (laughs) <laughs> which was on Sunday. <laughs> it's now Tuesday. No, how, it's how Tuesday. was that for you? It was great. It was such a an awesome night. Um, the audience was crazy. They were just on their feet the whole show, and everybody was really emotional. And I, I felt like after doing it for a year, I was. It was. It wasn't the kind of emotional ending where I wanted it. You know, I wanted to cling on to it and. Uh, you know, prolong it, but I was ready to move on. I felt really great about that final show. So happy that I had that year run in the show. Um, but I'm so excited to to be doing new projects, and and I'm really excited to put all my energy into Jason and Ben right now. And I'm very excited to have Will playing Jason and Ben, and um, a guy named Zach Fisher is playing Jason. Um, he's not here right now, but he's he's uh, he sort of has a band, the Zach Fisher. Um, it is the Zach Fisher band. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Um, and you know, it's kind of Will's from this. You know, just done a lot of theater, and Zach has done Shakespeare and fronts a rock band. So I can't wait to see the two of them together. I'm so excited that both of them are involved. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't met him yet. We haven't started rehearsals yet. So I think the question, I imagine you've heard this a few times, rock musical, how rock is it? 
<laughs> is it really rock? It's it's <laughs> yes. It's probably it's probably you know a mix of. I mean, I guess it's probably more pop music. But I feel like a lot of indie rock music is pop music. I mean, I I I don't really think. I don't. I, I rarely hear real rock music. I think anymore. Um, I think you know mostly what I hear the melodies and you know the progressions and the instrumentation. It's it's more pop, or maybe that's what I like to listen to. But um, I guess it's you know it could be an indie pop rock musical with certainly theatrical. Um, I mean, I you know I was to my first Broadway show when I was five, so. I, I've loved theater my whole life, and you know I think the music is definitely the- theatrical, as it should be. Um, but it's not, if if I may, it's oh, not sure. that the generic contemporary musical theater pop sound that everyone's tired of hearing. It definitely oh. has more of an edge to it. I mean, yeah, it's scored for you know we have the, act, the two actors actually play the acoustic guitar in the show, and we have a four-person you know a bass, uh, lead guitar, piano, and uh, drums. So. It's like the smallest show with the biggest band uh, in Nymph, or at least in the theater that we're in. I, you know, I have the smallest cast and the largest band, um, and I want it to be loud, and I want people. I want, I, you know, I kind of wrote it with the intention of it feeling like a show, like a rock show, more than a, more than a musical. And you know, I hope, you know, I hope some of that comes across. Well, I know you cut a simple demo here with Will before rehearsals started. <laughs> it's um, true. Did you? Why don't we play one of those songs? Lovely. Uh, do you want to set this first one up? Um, this is actually a song that um, Jason sings. It's the second song in the show. It's called "To Get You," um, and he's basically just approached um, Ben in a park. Um, it's not a specific park, but a park in New York City on Christmas Eve. And he's um, he's uh, sat down next to Ben, and he heard Ben singing earlier, and now he decides to sing Ben one of his songs. They're both songwriters. Um, and so, you know, Jason has taken an interest to Ben and wants to sort of maybe get on his level and sort of maybe, you know, show him um, his talent to sort of entice him, all of those things, um, and plays this song he wrote when he was 23. And Ben is currently 23, and Jason is 32. So he tries to, I think, get on Ben's level with this song. All right. Do, 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 do. to meet you, though we've met before. I stopped by where you work to say I love you. Except I don't say that well, not out loud. What I say is you left your scarf at Chris's party. And you look at me like you think I'm kind of crazy. And you know the thing is, I understand. Like it's maybe why you left Chris's party without me And why you slowly take the scarf from my hand So I'm not here about the clothing that you left behind To both of us the fact is well known It's just that I wanted to see you 
say thanks and I leave you alone. So what do I do? What do I do? What do I need to do to get you? What do I do? What do I do? What do I need to do to get you? And two weeks later I see you at my favorite bar And I look at you to see if you'll find me And suddenly you and your scarf stare back at me Except you're staring at the guy behind me So okay, you're just some stupid guy And it's not like I've never been kissed But I'm getting tired of adding names and faces to my stupid metastasizing list And don't worry that I'm fading away in the corner You're safe from it's nice to have met you Cause even though you look alright from way over here I still don't know how the hell to get you So what do I do, what do I do, what do I need to do to get you What do I do, what do I do, what do I need to do to get you So Matthew, is uh, is this your first foray in the musical theater, or have you been even writing before? This is actually my first written musical. I've I've done two shows um, that were mimed. Yes, I, <laughs> they were silent musicals. <laughs> um, no, there. You know, I've I actually in college and in New York for ten, I've been here ten years. I've been doing improv, and I have a show called the Next Big Broadway Musical, which is currently running, um, but it will will be over by the time this airs. Um, so it's the last big Broadway musical. It's the last. It's, no, it, it will. It, it, we've been doing it for like eight years. It never stops. Um, and it's 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 a two act improvised musical. And um, another show called The Nuclear Family ran off Broadway for about eight months, and we still continue to do that. And that's another improvised musical. So basically, I've probably written more musicals than anyone in New York City, um, but I've actually just written one down. <laughs> so that's what I'm kind of thinking. It. This is the first one I've ever written down. Um, so what's what's some of your background before uh, a chorus line? Well, I grew up in North Carolina, in Charlotte, and I went to a. Where's the southern accent? Uh, well, <laughs> the next part of the story is that I went. Um, I studied acting at Carnegie Mellon, and we had a lot of speech teachers, and that's how I I learned. How they to, beat you there, right? They did. They beat it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went there for, you know, all four years and had the proper education and um, the proper theater education. I didn't learn much else. I learned basically only about theater. 
You didn't learn how to like uh, you know shotgun a beer. Oh, uh, oh yeah, well, okay, yeah, something like that. You got the important stuff. So yeah, okay, but I didn't <laughs> learn how to like you know do a math problem and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> then uh, so I moved here after I graduated in two thousand three, and I've been basically working in New York. I haven't left town, so it's been it's been fun. It's been a great past five years here. All right, well, let's take another listen to the second song that you guys demoed before uh, rehearsal started. Uh, sure. You want to set this one up? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to give too much away about this song. It's toward the end of the show, and this is actually a song that um, Ben does sing. Um, and it's basically at the climax of the show and of um, the interaction and, you know, the night between Jason and Ben. And I think that's that's an appropriate amount of information to, um, you know, it, there's much more going on in this moment, but you'll have to come see it to um, see and hear what that is. Yeah. All right. Take a listen. I crack my knuckles and study the lines in your face. After all this time, still lingering in this one place. You hypothesize. I read you like a book You look so tired I feel like how you look Obfuscate my will It's a piece of cake Keeping perfectly still My apologies That I haven't gone away Some amount of pride Compelling me to stay Your intellect 
bend into a trap Your acumen got left upon the shelf You idiot, you just destroyed yourself Waiting for you to save me Didn't you see the beacon Wanting to be made stronger Feeling my muscles weaken Watching from your window Wait I think you So Jason and Ben runs from September 24th through October 5th, is that right? That is correct. And uh, what theater are you located at? The 45th Street Theater on West 45th Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues. Nice little theater. It's a great, oh, we were so excited to get this theater. I was. Um, everyone else, I think, like during the first theater run, run, I mean, it's a raw, you know, I love the space, and I think it I think it kind of maybe shocks other people. <laughs> but I was, I'm, I'm so happy to be in that theater. And if they want to find out the specific dates, because this is the crazy scheduling, it's mm-hmm. uh, jasonandbenthemusical.com. It's true, and it's the word and, even though it's an ampersand in the title. It's Jason Andy Ben the musical.com. And uh, there may be jump ropes for you may get a jump rope. <laughs> <laughs> you may get a, yes, there are jump ropes. <laughs> and uh, yes, and I won't tell you why that and they're jump ropes either. You'll have to come see the show. You sir win a prize for most interesting tchotchke. I'm good. That was my <laughs> my goal was to get the most interesting tchotchke for the show, for for the promotion of the show. Awesome. All right. Well, Matthew Lauren Cohen and Will Taylor, thank you so much for stopping by the studios to chat about the show, and best of luck on your run. Thank Thank you, Michael. Thank you. The Producer's Perspective. Hey, everybody. It's Ken Davenport with The Producer's Perspective. This week, I'm going to continue with the theme of the podcast and talk about festivals. Theater festivals, like film festivals, have exploded in size and number over the last five years. There's the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, there's the New York Fringe, the Minneapolis Fringe, Toronto, the Midtown International Fringe Festival, and of course the New York Musical Theater Festival, which gave birth to one of my first shows, Alter Boys. And there are countless other festivals around the country and around the world that were created to give new plays and musicals an easier entry point to production by covering a portion of the expenses and the responsibilities, namely press and marketing and theater rent. And it's no coincidence that those two expenses are the biggest issues off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, and also on-Broadway. It actually trickles all the way down. So the festivals were created as a way to take some of that responsibility off your hands. 
So getting into a theater festival makes your life a lot easier as a producer, right? Not so fast. Getting into a festival is like an actor getting an agent. Sometimes when an actor first gets an agent, you know, they, they go out and celebrate. They have a few drinks at Angus, at Vintage, and they think the agent is going to do all of the work for them. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Actually, getting an agent usually requires an actor to work harder, especially if you want to stand out. And how you stand out is the challenge for both the actor and the show in the festival. Festivals, the way I like to think of it, are like buffets. All the shows are lined up next to each other, just like all the food at your local deli is lined up next to each other. The quiche is next to the corn, which is next to the strawberry jello with those little marshmallows in it, which I never understood and have never eaten. And while having all those choices on that buffet sounds too good to be true at first, all those choices can be overwhelming to the consumer especially if these are new dishes or new plays that the diner or theater goer has never tasted before. And remember, just like at a buffet, you can only eat so many in one sitting. I mean, think about it. How many times have you been to a buffet and found yourself wandering around that salad bar or that food bar trying to decide just what you should try? Well, that's exactly what a festival audience does. If you're lucky enough to get on the plate of the consumer, you're probably just one of many portions at the same time. So, with so many choices, it's hard for the Jello with those little marshmallows to stand out. Your job as a producer in a festival is to make your show seem like a waiter-served entree, one that costs a lot more than the flat-rate, all-you-can-eat, warming-tray-heated, slightly-stale other options. You can't just be one of the choices. You have to make yourself the choice, the one that makes people come back for seconds. How do you do it? I'm not exactly sure. Every show is different. But I will tell you what not to do. Don't do what the other shows are doing. You have to do more and do different. That's what makes shows stand out in a festival. This is Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com, and I am now very hungry. On the Boards. Considering how many religions uh, view dance and rock music as uh, the bane of our existence and we're going to hell, maybe it's appropriate that a rock dance musical surrounding the uh, fall of Eve in the Garden of Eden in the creation story uh, is the subject of Sophia's Fall playing at the New York Musical Theater Festival. Uh, we have got composer-producer Benjamin Burney and director-choreographer Jason Summers here to talk with us about their show, Sophia's Fall, and we'll hear a little bit of the music from the show. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Very excited to be here. So uh, first off, maybe just introduce yourselves quickly so people can connect the name with your voice. Sure. Well, my name is Ben Burney, and uh, I've been working on the show for about eight years total. Not every day of those eight years, but uh, quite a few of the days. And um, Four, right? Yeah, four or five years. <laughs> no, days, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Eight uh, years, four or five days. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we've been playing with it in New York since 2005. Uh, we've had some great casts and some great creative people working with us. Um, so, I'm, I'm in the producer. I'm wearing the producer's hat today, but um, most, most days of the week I try to mess with notes. Okay, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but it, that's not a very stylish hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Jason Summers. I'm the director-choreographer. I first got involved with the production in 2006 as the choreographer for the workshop production when the show was still called Paradise Lost. So what has the process been for you? 
with getting the show ready? Well, uh, we had to get into the theater festival first this time around, and that was tough. Um, we're very, very happy to be in. Uh, we're in the dance series, so we're uh, playing with a bunch of other dance shows. So, you know, we had to, we had to do that, and um, that was tough. We tried last year and didn't get in and went back and made a lot of what I think are improvements to the show and uh, tightened things up a lot. So, so that was the first part, and then since then, it's been um, the, the game has been getting the technical elements ready and getting the scripts and the, the songbooks and casting the show, um, getting the musicians lined up. So there's there's a bajillion details that happen uh, before the rehearsals ever start that a lot of people don't think about. I'm, I'm sure plenty of other shows will talk about this too, but there's um, there's a lot that happens before we ever start rehearsing. And that's uh, what I've learned is part of the the small producer's job. I'm sure the big producer just sit around and, and hire somebody to do it for them. But we um, we little fish have to go and take care of all those details ourselves. And uh, that's been a challenge for me because that's not that's what my training is. Um, now, when you say this is a rock dance musical, how how much musical, how much dance piece is it? Because our e- um, I think the focus is still on musical. I like okay. to think of it more as a movement-based show than a, a full-out dance show, the way a contact is or moving out. Um, the focus is on the storytelling and on the creation of these characters because of the different locations we go to, heaven, hell, Eden. Each of the locations have their own style of movement, their own vocabulary, and that's really where the focus is, is showing the contrast between all those different locations. All right. Well, maybe at this point we should listen to one of the demos. Sure. The first track we're going to do is called In the Beginning. This is our show opener. Um, In this song, we hear and see the creation of Earth uh, by uh, all of of the angels before they split up. So Lucifer's in there doing uh, his creative work, and and Sophia, his lover, and his uh, partner is in there, although at this point in the show they haven't sort of started to do that. Uh, and there's a whole cast of people. We don't know who's going to go one way and who's going to go the other way, I guess, unless we're religious scholars and recognize the names. But I don't know. I, I don't think there are that many people that do. So um, so everybody's a blank slate at this point, and we're putting it all together. Um, and and uh, at the end of it, we're, we've, got, uh, we've got Earth. All right. Let's take a listen. Think you know the answers. Heard it all before. Think you know the truth and how it came to be. Come and hear our fable, different but familiar. Listen full of wonder to our story.
drive metal into mud. I will raise up the tallest mountains and submerge the rest in flood. Let me cap the peaks with snow and cap the water white, fruits and flowers in the trees and the field of stars at night. There is beauty in my touch, building triumph in God's song. My light on God's creation makes the world both sweet and strong with all this beauty spinning. God's world will have a bright beginning. So during the eight years of, of writing this show, what 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 have been some of the other projects that you've worked on? And Jason, what have kind of been some of your projects as well? So just kind of sure, I can start. Actually, this is um, this has been my main creative focus as a as a musician for the last eight years. I've certainly done other things. I do a lot of work with um, choral church music, and um, I've I've written some pieces. Uh, for piano, you know, just just to keep my chops up. I have a couple of sort of party songs that I've written that um, that I pull out when I have to entertain people, and those are fun. But um, I haven't tackled another, another musical than this because it's been um, this has been it. This has been you know what I've sort of been putting everything, all the all the main energy into, uh, and we've gone through a ton of drafts. Uh, we've we've uh, just put a. There's probably three musicals worth of songs in it at this point. So I guess you could say those are the other musicals I've been working on. And I've had the opportunity to tackle a lot of new material uh, since working on Paradise Lost and now Sophia's Fall. Uh, last fall, I wrote and directed the new off-Broadway musical Growing Up 70s for Barry Williams, TV's Greg Brady. And uh, went down to Florida for a few months, directed a couple of new pieces down there. So I've been pretty active on the premiering new musicals thing. So this seems <laughs> very much in line with the rest of what I'm doing. All right. Well, let's take a listen to another song from your demo here. Uh, you want to set this one up? Sure. This next number is called No Turning Back. And uh, I, I think this is one of my favorite songs in the show, if not my favorite song in the show. It's, uh, it closes Act One. And immediately before this, uh, Sophia has uh, gone against the orders that she receives from Gabriel. Uh, which purport to come from God. And uh, she has directly um, struck Lucifer to try to prevent him from tempting Adam and Eve. She doesn't want him to do that uh, because she feels uh, a great emotional connection to them that, that um, she just can't stand by and let, let Lucifer have his way with them. So she strikes them, and, um, and Gabriel and the rest of the angels come in and uh, have to tell her that she's, she's banished. She's uh, no longer favored, and she's not welcome back. All right, let's take a look. Shame, shame, you have committed wrong and now the blame. Blame, you are banished from the world where you belong. Belong, the world where you belong is down below. Below, with your father looking down and heaven is lost to you.
Sophia's Fall is uh, doing the New York Musical Theater Festival from September 18th through September 20th. And uh, what theater are you guys playing at with that? We are at 37 Arts, which is a great space. It's a perfect space for this piece. Yeah, definitely a nice lot of room there to to work. And uh, is there a website they can go to besides the nymph site? There is, yeah. We have um, sophiasfall.com, S-O-P-H-I-A-S fall.com. And uh, we've got the whole... Uh, d- demo album available there, including the two tracks that we did today. And uh, in the next couple of days, we're going to be putting up some really cool concept art that we had commissioned for the show a couple months back that uh, shows um, what the costumes are going to look like and uh, what some of the movement is going to look like from the characters. So that's, uh, you know, it's, that's our main sort of media source. We've got a lot of stuff on, on nymph.org also. So, uh, and that's the place for tickets. So that's, uh, you know, you can start at either place, but um, sophiasfall.com is our main clearinghouse. All right. So, Benjamin Burney and Jason Summers, I thank you so much for coming down to talk about Sophia's Fall and wish you the best of luck with the run at Nymph. Thank you so much. It's been our pleasure. On the boards. William Shakespeare continues to be inspiration for theater writers well, four or five hundred years after his death, and a new show, Midnight Madness, which is being presented by the New Jersey Youth Theater in conjunction with the New York Musical Theater Festival on September 18th to the 21st, is no exception, uh, taking a political modern twist on uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And we have composer Jack Bender, who is also the orchestrator for the production, and Cynthia Merrill, who did lyrics and book for Midnight Madness, here to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? Great. Fine, thank you. All right, well, first is first, uh, what is Midnight Madness about? Uh, Midnight Madness, as you said, is based on a Midsummer Night Dream. Uh, but in our version, the character of Theseus, who is the Duke, is the incumbent Republican mayor of New York, and he announces to reporters that he's going to wed his opponent, a Democrat. He is convinced that Republicans and Democrats can learn to listen to each other and work together. So it's a fantasy. 
We call it a <laughs> we call it a fable. It's called a modern musical fable. And that's one storyline. Of course, we have the lovers who get lost in the park. Uh, Hermia is the daughter of Edgar, who is a judge who works with Theo. And he wants her to marry Dietrich, an assistant DA, who, of course, is the Demetrius character. And But she's in love with Sander, the Lysander character, who is a comptroller in the courts building. And Helena is Theo's secretary. So we have the four lovers. The mechanicals so are... I, I see. You're, so you're saying it's after Midsummer Night's Dream so you don't get sued by Boston Legal. Right? That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and the mechanicals are a community theater group from Queens called the Queens Thespians, but Bottom continually calls them the Thespian mm-hmm. Queens. And the fairies are the fairies of Central Park. Oberon and Titania and Puck live with the fairies in Central Park. And they quite cause all the mischief. So uh, what was the inspiration to turn Midsummer Night's Dream into the, this political fable? I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I always thought Midsummer Night's Dream should be a musical, but a regular musical, something crazy, something, and I, I think, and I think Jack agrees with me that mm-hmm. the current atmosphere of theater I want just to leave the theater feeling good. And that's, I think, what this show does, because it's about these people who get left alone in the park, in the darkness, hence the song, Alone in the Darkness, and to know that there's something watching over them, um, keeping them safe and taking care of them. And you leave the theater feeling terrific, and you laugh a lot. And his music is gorgeous. Well, I tried. Tell tell us a little bit about the music, Jack. Um, Cynthia approached me in uh, about two, three years ago when we started writing the project. Um, This is actually my first uh, major compositional um, endeavor. uh, I am a music education major. I'm a high school teacher, and I've done a whole bunch of teaching music, but uh, composing is something sort of new to me. I I mean, I I do a rock band. I do a whole bunch of different things where I write, but... uh, Cynthia um, approached me and asked if I'd be interested in writing a musical, and she had the idea for um, this musical version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I thought it was really fascinating and a really great script and a really great sense of the lyrics in the book. And it's just, it's been a real interesting and fun project to work for the past two years on this show. We uh, basically met like once a week and worked through everything and it's been a really really neat thing i also never orchestrated before and it's uh so far i'm really happy with what i have you know how i know you're a high school teacher you just said neat thing (laughs) (laughs) somehow (laughs) yeah i can't get it out of me (laughs) we spend entirely too much time with young people oh yeah (laughs) although i have to say these young people um, the, the point of our organization is to provide a professional experience, which is why we're at the Performing Arts Center in Newark, to young people. So either they know they can't, if they can make it through our summer, then they can make it because they work under Actors' Equity Standards. They're as good as anybody you'd see in New York. Our shows could play in New York anywhere. 
and uh, so they're pretty tough kids. They're they're talented. really they're very talented. Very I do want talented. to talk a little bit more about your group, but before we do, just to, um, maybe let listeners get a taste of what the music from the show is all about. Um, we'll play one of the first songs from your demo here. Do you want to set up this first song we're going to play? Um, this song is uh, comes near the end of the show when you know there are four storylines in Midsummer Night Dream. It's probably his most it's flawed play. Um, Hard to put back together. And you have to resolve all the different storylines. But the the way we do it, the four women all have issues that have to be resolved. And um, Helena finds herself. Millie speaks up and says, I can have a husband and be in politics. Um, uh, Lydia opens up and says, I I have to do what I need to do and what my dad tells me to do. I'm an adult. And Titania has to redeem herself for screwing up the election. So th- this song is where everything is resolved and it comes together at the end of the show. All right, let's take a listen to Red Hot Mama. From the Upper West Side. All right. I know you're not surprised to hear me speak my mind. I was bashful and could never find my way. But now I feel a change I look around and I find Those girls are gone And we're here to proudly
good health and very, very long life. I may as well be more than that. He works by partisan This is the New Jersey Youth Theater presenting here. And I can tell by a couple of your comments that I'm, I'm sure you must get from some colleagues or something this kind of like look down the nose of, oh, you do youth theater, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> but you've, you've won quite a few awards and you do quite well. Yes. And, and it's not just like 12 year olds. On, it's a, you, no, on. no, no, no. Um, we have classes during the year. Um, uh, from September to May, we run performing arts classes uh, in Roselle Park, and they're training classes. They're hardcore training classes. The purpose of our organization is for kids who want to be professionals. Then in the summer... I said, what's your intention? What's your intention, kid? <laughs> and then in the summer, we have the only free program of its kind. We've been free for 17 years. That's so, cool. So any kid can audition, and they have to audition to get in, but it is free. They don't pay any tuition at all. We've never charged a kid. And... Um, they audition, and then we do the shows there. And at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, we work in association with the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. They have been so fantastic to us. And so the awards we've won. We've won um, the Music Theater International Award of Excellence for our production of West Side Story, which is an international award. Um, our Ragtime won um, from the Star Ledger. Peter Felicia, the critic, named it the best show of 2006. Um, this is above all the other professional theaters, and humbly, I have to tell you, I also won Best Director for that. And, uh, you know, so we've won quite a few awards. The kids, they can play anywhere in New York. They, they're terrific. And they sing yeah. his music beautifully. <laughs> they worked really hard. The music is not easy. Not easy. It's, but um, they, they really worked hard, and, you know, we learned from each other through the whole process, but these kids are, they're, they're top-notch. They're great. So, Jack, you said this is your first foray into musical theater? Um, not, not per se in music theater. I've been a music director. Okay. Uh, as know, a composer. Past, but as a composer, absolutely, yes. Okay. So my question to you is, uh, you've composed other things, and you've been, you were saying rock bands and stuff. What was, for you, the biggest surprising challenge or hurdle for you in the, in the process of composing easy, this that's show? That's a very easy question. Um, uh, Puck, the, uh, the, the boy, uh, uh, playing the the character of Puck, uh, when we first first right right of the show, I wrote him as a young adult, so a tenor. Um, after a second or third rewrite, I forget at which point, um, we then moved, decided he was going to be a boy. So I had to make all of the music work for a boy soprano and still be difficult enough to be interesting yet easy enough for a, a child to learn yet interesting enough for an audience to that was a challenge and uh, and, then and they I also keep to, their voice keeps changing and yes yeah, so we were on our second puck we're on our and, second <laughs> puck and and even him he started he's out on a tenor. the brink he's right on the brink of becoming a baritone so you know Fingers we're going to keep going through pucks but it's uh it's really fun it, that was that that was fun and challenging and uh it was really interesting to make everything work in the new keys and to make things work for a boy soprano as opposed to Oberon, who's a 
an adult male bass and make them work together in their in their musical dialogue and really interesting and different challenges vocally. Uh, but these kids, as I said, they're really they're really rising to the challenge and they're doing some things that I didn't think were possible for voice and uh, it's fun. All right, well, let's take a listen to the second song on your demo. Do you want to set this one up, Jack? Um, sure. Our second one uh, is Alone in the Darkness, and that is, uh, that is uh, basically comes around, right around the middle of the first act, and we have Helena. No, no. I'm sorry, Lydia. Lydia, Lydia and uh, Sander. Lydia and Sander, who are the... Uh, they're lost in Central Park first, and... Uh, Sander falls asleep, and, and Lydia is just finding herself very alone for the first time, looking around and seeing all the homeless people sleeping in the park, and um, if really, for the first time, opening her eyes to the world outside her, her little charmed life that she had living, you know, living in, in the... They're uh, running off to be married. Yes, they're running off to be and, married, and they get lost. And oh, one thing we didn't mention is... There's a power outage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Titania and Oberon are angry with each other because Oberon thinks that she rigged the election because she's for... She is for Theo, and he's, he's for, for Millie. Millie. So they're mad at each other, and the opening of the show is magic, and you see them throw their arms up and lightning and thunder and all the power's out. So everybody's hot and sweaty, and there's no electricity. They can't and see. it's like they're walking through yeah. the park in the dark, and they get lost, and it's just rained, and she sees all—she's from East 63rd, and she didn't know that this went on in the park. She just led a charmed life, and he falls asleep, and she looks around, and she hears the voices in the park. All right, let's take yep. a listen. Look at these people. What are they doing? There are so many asleep in the park where are their families where are their children are they afraid all alone in the dark we must be crazy what were we How's this? I hear your voice and it's so reassuring. I'm not alone when your heart is with me. Alone, alone, alone in the darkness. I looked through my window with eyes that were blind. Lydia? Sander, if my father finds us. Well, okay, I'll, I'll take that tree. Good night.
So audiences can catch uh, Midnight Madness on from September 18th to the 21st. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what theater you're at? We're in the Alvin Ailey. Mm-hmm. And Thursday, the performance is at 3, uh, Friday and Saturday at 8, and Sunday at 3. Tickets are available at smartticks.com. All right. So Jack Bender and Cynthia Merrill, I thank you so much for coming down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Madness and best of luck to you in the New Jersey Youth Theater. And that's also NJUtheatre. Dot org. Dot org. And if you if you go on there, there's a 49 second quick thing to Red Hot Mama with bits from the show on it. There's clips there. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good day. Thanks. Thank you. You too. Top of the trades. A white DJ playing black music in the early 1950s South causes a personal, professional, and social earthquake in the new musical Memphis, opening September 3rd after previews from August 19th at the La Jolla Playhouse in California. Chad Kimball is the disc spinner in question in the musical by librettist lyricist Joe DiPietro and composer lyricist David Byer, David Bryan. <laughs> you may recognize David Bryan as the keyboardist from Bon Jovi. Performances play La Jolla's Playhouse, Mandel's Weiss Theater, to September 28th. Cass Morgan, Montego Glover, J. Bernard Calloway, Alan Fitzpatrick, James Monroe Eigelhart, and Michael Benjamin Washington take principal roles in the staging. It was almost a requirement to have three names. <laughs> Memphis is the first production directed by Christopher Ashley at La Jolla Playhouse since becoming artistic director. The Tempest, Shakespeare's late career romance about a storm and castaways who encounter a brave new island world, is conjured by Classic Stage Company starting September 3rd in an off-Broadway production starring Tony Award winner Mandy Patinkin. As magic-making Prospero, Patinkin will sing one of several songs in the new production directed by CSC Artistic Director Brian Kulik. Original music and sound design are by Christian Fredrickson. Opening is September 18th in CSC's intimate home on East 13th Street in Manhattan. Director Harold Prince's new musical, Paradise Found, seen earlier this year in a Manhattan reading that featured Schuler Hensley, Rebecca Luker, Darius DeHaas, and John Cullum, will be produced in 2009. The New York Post reported September 3rd that Prince would direct the Broadway-aimed musical in spring 2009. No word on where or when the show with music by Waltz King, Johann Strauss II, and Jonathan Tunick, and lyrics by Ellen Fitzhugh, would surface. Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, which programs the Amundsen Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, and the Kirk Douglas Theater in L.A., produced the April 2008 reading, which was co-directed by Prince and Susan Stroman. More news in Top of the Trades in our next episode, and you can find out more about the news and our callboard stuff by visiting the show notes at broadwaybullet.com and check out the Volume 216 show notes. Curtain Call. All right, well, that wraps up this week's jam-packed episode. Remember, go to nymph.org for more information on all the shows here. And uh, also, single tickets did go on sale September 1st, so some of these shows are going fast. You might want to check that out right away. We're going to have another episode next week, two more weeks in a row with all nymph shows, so be sure to check back. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Actually, the bar faith thing comes from my whole life. People just go into the culture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, to propose this project. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit.
So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.